chapter 1, verses 12 through 18a. Philippians 1, 12 through 18a. Paul writes to the Philippian church, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. The year is 1555. Queen Mary I is on the throne of England, better known by her nickname, Bloody Mary. And as part of her plan to bring England back into Catholicism, she has arrested two bishops who have sought to proclaim the true gospel, men by the name of Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. They are imprisoned, they are shown, they are examined, and then on the 16th of October, the year 1555, they are taken to a stake in the city of Oxford and tied up to be burned for their testimony. And while he's being prepared for death, Nicholas Ridley prays, and he says, O Heavenly Father, I give unto thee most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee, even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England, and deliver it from all her enemies. That was Ridley's prayer, but Ridley's death would prove to be slower and more agonizing than his friend's Hugh Latimer. But as they're both being consumed by the fire, Latimer says to his partner the now famous words, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. As one author puts it, in the years to follow, Latimer and Ridley's candle burst into a torch. God heard their cries, and their testimony of love for Christ in the midst of suffering continues, so that today, almost 500 years later, we still often speak of Ridley and of Latimer, and of their dying desire to glorify King Jesus. It's interesting that in the mysterious providence of our God, it has often been the case throughout the history of the church that the gospel of the glorified, crucified Christ is most loudly proclaimed in the testimonies of persecuted, suffering Christians. 
And nowhere is that more clear than in our text this morning. So we have begun, church, a series of studies in this New Testament letter uh, to the church at Philippi. Uh, This letter is written around 60 AD by the Apostle Paul to a church he had had the privilege of helping start roughly a decade earlier. Paul is writing, if you'll remember, under house arrests from Rome, awaiting news of his fate, imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. Last week, we opened this letter and we saw in the first few verses that Paul is filled with joy because the Philippian Christians have partnered with him in the gospel. And now in verses 12 through 18, Paul gets a little bit more personal and a little bit bit more detailed, and he shares with them the state of affairs for him in Rome. And it doesn't look good on the face of it. He's a prisoner. He could very well be executed. But as he recounts his suffering, Paul inexplicably is is full of joy. And and beyond that, he's actually sure that the Philippians will share in this joy with him. Why? Because even in the midst of his weakness and suffering, the gospel is being proclaimed. Jesus is being preached. And in that, Paul rejoices. In that, Ridley and Latimer rejoiced. In that, by God's grace, we rejoice. Church, three truths to consider together from this text this morning. Three truths that we see in Paul's testimony, and that should be true in our lives as well. First, Christian suffering serves God's purposes. Christian suffering serves God's purposes. Second, Christian suffering encourages boldness. Christian suffering encourages boldness. And third, gospel proclamation brings joy. Gospel proclamation brings joy. May God give us renewed boldness as we see Paul's testimony here. So first, Christian suffering serves God's purposes. There in, in verse 12, Paul says to the Philippians who are no doubt worried, they've, they've sent an emissary, Epaphroditus, to him to express their care and concern. But he says to them in return, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So Paul is speaking to the brothers in Philippi. That's a word that would also include sisters, presumably, in Christ who are there in that church. And he's sharing that while he is indeed imprisoned, while he has indeed been mistreated, the gospel has been advancing. Calls to mind a verse from 2 Timothy, Paul writing from kind of his final imprisonment in Rome in that book. And he says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But he's not done. Listen to what he says next. But the word of God is not bound. So I'm bound up. I'm chained up. I can't leave this place. I'm stuck. But the word of God isn't. The word of God is advancing. The word of God cannot be stopped. It cannot be bound up. It's that same joy that Paul is communicating here. 
In the midst of his suffering, he takes great joy in knowing that God's plan of salvation is still on the move. Indeed, his imprisonment in his mind isn't even an obstacle in that. It's not an obstacle in God's way. It's part of God's way. The freedom Christians can have in suffering is in knowing that their suffering in Christ will always produce the glory of God. Now, to be clear, our suffering is painful. It hurts. So kind of understanding God's providence and suffering is not meant to kind of shoo away the pain. But it does inform the pain, doesn't it? It informs our suffering with this big picture of God's plan. And it's that big picture that gives Paul great joy. So think of a a military offensive where an army kind of breaks through the lines of their enemy and, and proceeds then to venture into enemy territory in power and conquering. The gospel is advancing even as its chief proclaimer is chained. It's amazing. What what has happened that has advanced the gospel? More money coming in to Paul's ministry? A, A bigger facility in which to preach? Maybe more friendliness and less opposition from the greater culture? No. It's suffering. In his suffering, Paul sees the success of his ministry. Sees the hand of God. Paul shares two ways specifically that his suffering has been effective in spreading the gospel. And the first there is in verse 13. So what has happened to advance the gospel, or what has happened to him, has advanced the gospel. And then he says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that his imprisonment is for Christ. The literal wording there in the original language is not for Christ, but in Christ. So Paul's saying not only that he's bearing this call as he, as he suffers for Christ, as he follows after Christ, but because he is in Christ, that he has been united to Christ. He's, he's saying that this is part of what it means to be a Christian. His suffering is part of belonging to Jesus. He is sharing in Christ, in Christ's sufferings. And by God's powerful grace, that news has now been circulated throughout the guards in Rome. Whether or not they believe it, nobody doubts why that dude Paul is in prison. It's for Christ. Christian, your suffering is part of a bigger picture too. And again, that realization in no way is meant to minimize your suffering as just kind of no big deal, as as something you just kind of need to get past and keep trusting God. No, suffering is horrible. But it does make your suffering meaningful, even while you're still in it. The suffering of the Christian is meant to show the sufficiency of the gospel. The suffering of a Christian displays kind of cruciform testimony to a cruciform Savior. It shows the world who Jesus is in a a way that our mere words can't. 
So one author puts it like this. He says, it is not that Paul is too heavenly minded to be in touch with reality or that he sees things through rosy tinted glasses. Rather, he sees everything in light of the bigger picture. And in that bigger picture, fully emblazoned on our screen at Calvary, there is nothing that does not fit. Even if it means suffering and death on the way to resurrection. There's nothing that does not fit. Church, suffering in Christ places a megaphone on our gospel proclamation. It serves God's purposes, which are always for his glory and for our good. I, I wonder, do you, do you have a hard time sharing your faith in Christ? Have you ever thought about speaking Christ to others in the context of your suffering? So maybe next time you're in your workplace or talking to your neighbors or kind of on the bus to the city or on a flight, on a business trip, listen for ways people start opening up about their hardship and suffering. Listen to that. And then prayerfully, humbly share how you too have suffered. And how in that suffering, only the gospel has brought you hope. Perhaps you feel weak in your faith and unable to kind of be bold for the gospel like Paul was. Well, newsflash, Paul was weak in many ways. He talks about it elsewhere at length. And yet he rejoices in that too because God was shown to be strong through him. So have you ever prayed that God would use your unique to you weaknesses to bring him glory? To show his strength to those around you? Alec Matir shares a story of two friends walking together. One older and wise the other younger and passing through a severe testing time. And he recounts how the older friend with loving wisdom turns and says, no moment will ever again be like this. Let there be something for Jesus in it. No moment will ever again be like this. No matter how hellish that moment is, no moment will ever again be like it. Let there be something for Jesus in it. Dear Christian, are you suffering this morning? You've put on a pretty face because it's church, but perhaps recently you've been mocked or embarrassed by a family member. Perhaps the workplace is becoming less friendly to you because of your faith. Perhaps temptation is clinging really closely. Perhaps anxiety and depression are winning the day. In whatever you're suffering, let there be something for Jesus in it. Where can you glorify Christ right now? Christian suffering serves God's purposes. You can trust him. Second, Christian suffering encourages Boldness. So this is the second way Paul says his imprisonment has served the advance of the gospel. He says there in verse 14, 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold now to speak the word without fear. So not only has Paul's suffering made it loud and clear throughout the imperial guard that he is suffering for Jesus in Christ, but his suffering has also given much boldness to the Christians in Rome. Paul says they have gained confidence because he is suffering. And this confidence is not ultimately in Paul. He writes there that their confidence is in the Lord. So Paul's example of courage in the midst of pain has not given them greater confidence in him as their leader, but in the Savior he's proclaiming as he suffers. Paul sees Jesus to be of such great value that he's worth suffering for. We'll see this again in Philippians 3. And that truth that Paul is is showing, rather than scaring the church away, actually energizes them. Makes them all the more desirous to witness to Christ. They have all the more boldness to proclaim the gospel without fear. And that doesn't mean that those kind of threats that were there before have all of a sudden been erased. There might even be more opposition. Paul's example is showing them that even in opposition, God will keep being glorified. And they'll keep getting joy. Notice here that the church is to speak the word. So I know that this quote has kind of been the whipping boy in the church as of late, but I'm going to keep it being whipped. So many Christians over the years have quoted this phrase, often attributed to Francis of Assisi. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Paul would have none of that. Yes, he would say, act gospel, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He'll say that in chapter 1. But never to the expense of speaking the gospel. His imprisonment isn't simply because he acted too Christian. No, he has proclaimed Christ with his mouth boldly. And now the Christians in Rome are all the more bold to do the same. Don't use that quote as a cop-out to not speak the gospel. Dear church, this passage is super practical for us. More and more, as you know, we are coming to realize that we have more and more to lose by proclaiming Christ in our current cultural climate. It, doesn't, it didn't always kind of feel that dangerous or threatening in the past to claim the truths of God's word, to preach the gospel, to talk about sin and salvation. But in God's sovereignty, it's becoming more so. So are you praying against the temptation that will become stronger to keep silent? Are you seeking to obey Christ and his command to proclaim his name? Paul talks about how those in the Roman church have less fear in proclamation than they used to. So be encouraged by that. The Christians in the first century had a lot of fear in evangelism. It's always been the main enemy to our speaking Christ. Fear of persecution. Fear of rejection. Fear of losing approval from others. 
fear of a fractured relationship, or simply just fear of awkward silence, simple discomfort. What do you fear when you think about sharing the gospel? Think of that fear right now, and then look at Paul. Paul was suffering the realization of many of your fears and more. And yet he had joy. He found joy. Not in hiding and being shamed into silence, but in speaking the word with boldness in suffering. So if you often feel kind of low-grade guilt about your failure to speak the gospel, I wonder if you can start surrounding yourself more with people like Paul. People who, even in suffering, will proclaim Jesus. Some of them are sitting right here beside you. Members of this church who will text me about conversations they've had with unbelievers that week and ask me to pray. Learn who those people are. Encourage them while they encourage you. Another way you can kind of work on growing boldness, if you feel weak in that category, I think is, is just ed- educating your fear with stories and testimonies of what God has done through his people over the centuries who have spoken boldly about Jesus. So uh, the elders right now are reading through a book called Evangelism as Exiles, which I highly commend to you. It's written by a former missionary in, that served in kind of places of great persecution. And one of the most encouraging parts of that book that we're discussing, the stories that stick out to us pretty much more than anything else, are the stories that author tells of people who have come to faith through his weak testimony, even through his failures, perhaps, and his doubts. People maybe who he had never guessed would have believed. And that encourages us. So church, consider the stories from the history of our faith. Consider the testimonies of people like Polycarp, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, Lady Jane Grey, William Tyndale, Eric Little, Hudson Taylor, John and Betty Stamm, even the stories of men and women you've known throughout your life. I was struck in Noah in my recent trip to the Balkans to hear one of the missionaries there tell me how his son, who's like eight years old, has already spoken out boldly about Christ in his school and been boldly opposed by the kids in his class. Church, stories like this happen all the time in the church. And, and rather than guilting us, these stories actually give us boldness. Start reading them. The gospel is worth proclaiming. We're not crazy. And as we read these stories, we are encouraged, actually encouraged, given courage as we read the stories of saints who have gone before, who have counted the cost of following Christ and found it incredibly worthwhile. So if you're ever tempted to think it's too costly to proclaim Christ with that person, too costly to proclaim Christ with that family member, listen to the stories of these saints and how they're shouting out, no, Jesus is worth it. Proclaim him. Christian suffering encourages boldness. And the final thing to see this morning is that gospel proclamation brings joy. So Paul writes this gladsome news. 
that in the midst of suffering, the gospel is advancing. But then look there in verse 15. Things take a really strange twist here. He's all excited. He's rejoicing. Then he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Perhaps some of your translations say selfish ambition. So there's a whole slew of opinions here about what Paul is exactly talking about and who he's exactly talking about. But, but let's kind of see on the face of it what seems to be true and clear. So it seems that he's talking about people within the church in Rome who actually believe in Jesus and actually are proclaiming the gospel. Otherwise, he wouldn't rejoice in what they're doing. But it's also clear that they're doing it for really bad motives. So people have speculated about who these people are. Perhaps they're the Judaizers that you can read about in Galatians, those Jews who would seek to kind of make Gentile Christians observe Jewish custom in order to be good with God. But Paul had really harsh words for those people. I don't think he would have been rejoicing if they were proclaiming Christ. These people do seem to be preaching Jesus. That's what's clear. Beyond that, not much is clear. We're not exactly sure where the problem is between Paul and these people. Perhaps they had more of a personal vendetta for Paul, some unholy ambition to kind of one-up him, competitiveness that will kind of bother him. Maybe there were some significant theological disagreements, but the gospel was maintained. So he was a little worried, but he was happy that the gospel was out there. I'm not sure. And when you read the commentaries, you realize that a lot of people aren't sure either. And we can speculate all we want, and perhaps some of that speculation would help you dig into God's word. Go for it. But it's also true that Paul doesn't really give any details, right? I mean, he doesn't give the Philippians much info on this. So he's clear that it's, dis- that it's meant to discourage him. There's downsides to this. He has rivals in the church at Rome that want him to be discouraged even while he's suffering in prison. But then he just kind of gets past that and he gets to verse 18 and he shows us his overall attitude towards this so-called problem. And he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. I think it's important to notice that Paul is not saying motives don't matter. Just read his other writings. He's not playing Mr. Pragmatist and ignoring the problems of indwelling sin that are no doubt involved here. And and perhaps if he was writing this letter to those people, it would have a lot of a different tone, right? Perhaps then he would be warning them against selfish ambition, and he would have worded all this differently. But he's writing to the Philippians, to his partners in the gospel. And he's using this as a way to show them how to rejoice even when they are opposed by other Christians. He's kind of zooming out and reminding them of the big picture. That when Christ is proclaimed, there's reason for joy. 
For Paul, gospel proclamation brings joy. These people are difficult. They're seeking to add insult to injury for Paul. But ironically, unbeknownst to them, he's encouraged. This is a win-win. Sure, God will deal with their hearts. But in the moment, God's gospel is advancing nonetheless. God is sovereign over both suffering in prison and sinful ambition in the hearts of his people. He uses his gospel to save the lost. He had saved Paul for Pete's sake, the chief of sinners. He'll save anybody. Church, we can learn here a lesson about the humility of belonging to Jesus. You'll know the famous quote that's attributed to Harry Truman. It's amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. Good wisdom, I think, for life. But perhaps we can tweak that a bit in Paul's language and say it's amazing what God can accomplish when his people care only that he gets the credit. Church, we will be handcuffed if we constantly seek to serve this church by one-upping each other. And evangelism can be an easy tool in that fight. We can stumble into taking pride in the fact that we can share a story of how we have shared the gospel when you can't. Church, God will receive the glory, not you. And that should give you freedom. Freedom from any temptation to sinful ambition and competitiveness. And as we sang before, it will allow your loosened tongue to proclaim the worth of Christ. A few years ago, when many of you know I was struggling mightily with anxiety, which I still struggle with, just not as mightily by God's grace, I remember just this, this feeling of utter freedom that came when I just realized that I would be totally content if someone else preached my sermon for me that Sunday. There, there was this freedom and contentment that was not birthed out of me because I'm a proud person, but was birthed by the Holy Spirit in me, by his grace, that I kind of long for now. Now that's kind of dissipated. Because now I'll have faced a temptation as I work on a sermon that I actually want to be the one that preaches it. I want to be the one who gets the credit for how it goes, especially if it goes really well. But God is kind to remind me that ultimate joy and freedom come when it's not Jacob who is proclaimed, but Christ. That freedom will be yours as well as you seek Christ's glory, not yours. Sermons are not for the glory of the preacher. Our life together as a church is not for our glory, but for the glory of God, and there's actual great actually great freedom there. As the saying goes, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And church, as we continue on in this letter of Philippians, we'll see this selflessness be one of the main themes that Paul is seeking to communicate. Paul will be urging the church to live out the gospel of Christ in part by being unconcerned for their own glory and concerned only for the good of others and the glory of Jesus in the unity of the church. And that is true freedom 
in that Paul rejoices. Do you? Do you rejoice when someone else gets the credit in this church? I don't always. That's why Philippians will be a good letter for us, because Paul will not only root this in good advice, but the gospel, and how Christ laid aside his glory for us. Because that's the reason we were created, right? We were created to display God's glory in the world as those made in his image. But ever since the first sin, we have been fighting tooth and nail to bring glory to ourselves. And it's just never worked out. Perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian. We're so grateful you're here. But just so you know, God's word teaches that every one of us has rebelled against God's plan for us. And we have set ourselves up as rulers of our own kingdoms. We have said, we want control. We want glory. But in our sin, when we hated God, he sent his son, the only truly glorious one. Jesus set aside his glory and bore our shame and our sin and our pride on himself. He took the penalty we deserved for our sin, the penalty of death, and he died that death for us. So that if we will repent of our sin and our self-glory and our pride and turn to God in faith, we'll be forgiven. We'll have a restored relationship with God the way it was always meant to be. In that alone is true meaning. If you have questions about what that looks like, we would love to talk to you more. You can talk to me after the service, talk to someone sitting next to you. We'd love to explain how we have found freedom in turning from the pursuit of our own glory to the glory of Christ. And church, as we continue on in Philippians, this is one of Paul's goals for the church in Philippi. Selfless love and unity in the church. He desires for them to rejoice that their own glory isn't proclaimed, but the name of Christ is proclaimed. And hopefully, we already want that, but hopefully that will kind of be stoked in us as we study this letter together. That we will more and more want to rejoice, not in our glory, but in Christ's. And so maybe the best way for you to start that process in your own heart this week, Christian, is to risk speaking Christ. There's going to be risk to your glory if you do that. Would you ask God to give you boldness to preach his glory instead? Would you surround yourself with others who obey this command and do it well and can help you? Would you seek to find joy not in the fame of your name but in the name of Christ? As you do, Little by little, you'll find joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. We ask for hearts and minds that are bold. Not preaching your gospel out of grim duty, but out of joyful hearts. Lord, this is not something we can stir up in ourselves apart from the power of your Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work the applications of this text into our hearts this week. Give us fresh joy in proclaiming Christ. 
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.